Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Welcome to the BIOS podcast, Nan. It's really nice to have you. Thanks for having me on. Could you just start by telling the audience a little about yourself? Yeah, sure thing. Hi, everyone. I'm Nan Lee, a managing director at Obvious Ventures. We are an early stage venture firm based in San Francisco, focused on investing in reimagining the most important sectors in our economy. The belief that we have is that the technologies that are prevalent in Silicon Valley are actually applicable everywhere. And unfortunately, they have been boxed into some digital native industries for the last 30 or 40 years. Industries like online advertising, cybersecurity, server software, they've had the steady pace of progress during that time, while other industries have stayed pretty much the same. And we're very interested to find ways to apply the tools of the tech industry to some of these foundational aspects of our economy. And this includes sectors like manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, agriculture, and logistics. Cool. And you've had a wide range of experiences, starting off in tech, and then to Bain, and then early tech investing and innovation endeavors, and then now with your own fund at Obvious. So could you give us some color into how you made these decisions and how your personal mission has changed over the course of your career? Yeah, yeah, happy to. Uh, Hindsight's always twenty twenty, so I, I don't know if there there was a, a lot of strategy or reasoning going into it. I think I I try to always explore my own interests and find an opportunity to work in areas that were that I felt a, a strong affinity to. Starting, you know, in terms of education, I I was focused on computer science and math, and coming out of that. Bain gave me such a great opportunity to explore the business side. And I was someone who was always curious about, you know, not just how to build something the way an engineer should be curious, but also why it should be built and, and how it fit in contextually to what else was out there. So I, I always try to explore my curiosity and I think finding a place in investing has been uh, such a great fit. And I've been doing early stage investing for about a decade at this point. And I think the evolution there over time has been that I've found this natural fit to look at emerging technology in a lot of these heavy duty industries that we mentioned earlier. Partially, I think it's a tremendous opportunity. And yes, I do believe that it will be a defining narrative for tech for the next decade and beyond. But also I just find it personally satisfying to think about these industries and to look at these new technologies. And in this case, you know, I, I get to have my cake and eat it too, which is great. So Nan, how, how did you settle on making your first kind of 
computational biology oriented investments because I, I got to say, my friend, I think at this point, it is safe to say that you are truly on the Mount Rushmore of, of investors in the space and have a, a long, lengthy track record to, to back that. Can you give us some, some kind of context into where you saw this just giant trend emerging and how you've kind of made your first few investments in the space? Yeah, I mean, I think the credit goes to a lot of folks in the industry that are that were doing pioneering work. For me, a lot of it was having a prepared mind and also being at the right place at the right time, as it so often goes. I was investing prior to Obvious at a firm called Innovation Endeavors at the time, directly supported by Eric Schmidt from Google. And we had the mandate before it was coined deep tech or frontier tech. We had the mandate to explore the cutting edge of technology because that's what Eric was interested in. So we were doing a lot of work around bioinformatics. We were looking at the trend of decreasing cost of sequencing and the success of Illumina. And the direction of progress was very clear that biology was becoming digitized and leaving behind an increasingly rich trail of digital breadcrumbs. So, so we were looking at that category and I, I was fortunate to meet the Zymergen team very early on. They were a seven person team working out of a Berkeley research space called QB3. And the research that we were doing at the time was mostly focused on bioinformatics. It wasn't around computational biology or biological discovery. But sitting down with Zach and Josh and some of the early folks at Zymergen, they just painted a really clear picture of how data science and machine learning could accelerate the synthetic biology discovery process. And you know, conceptually, it, it made all the sense in the world. The team was really strong. So we were fortunate to be one of their first uh, institutional investors in the seed round. And I, I think from, from having a front row seat at watching that company build from the ground up, it just made me more interested in this concept. And I realized that a lot of the learnings and the philosophies that Zymergen had could be applied across a whole host of different therapeutic areas in uh, uh, life science and in drug discovery. So it, it really piqued my interest and I started to do more work after that initial investment back in 2012, 2013. That's terrific, thanks, Nan. And I, I gotta ask, like, is someone like myself who maybe doesn't have a PhD, comes from more of a, a non-traditional uh, biology background, how do you kind of rely on either first principles or kind of other techniques to understand really kind of, not the computational aspects, but the biological aspects of uh, what you're trying to solve for? Yeah, yeah, it's very daunting. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's really important to stick to what you know. And especially in biology, where, where there, are so there are so many nooks and crannies within biology that are interesting and have a deep bench of domain experts in, in each category. I think it's really important to be a lifelong learner. You know, I certainly don't think, you know, I'm writing the book on biology in any, in any aspect. And I, I really try to stick to what I know, which is computer science, machine learning, data science approaches. But I've tried to augment that with at least an elementary school, middle school, high school <laughs> vocabulary around some of these biological areas. And I, I think it's important to bring something to the table that can 
resonate with the founders and have a conversation at a high level. But then just having biological awareness over what's going on in life science, what the fields of research are in pharma, what the latest development, developments are, that helps to contextualize the conversation enough. So I, I've always tried to lean heavily on computation and not stray away from that and start doing pure life science investing because as you mentioned, that's it's, that is its own domain. It has existed for a long time and they're really, really smart, deeply rooted people in those spaces. Yeah, I've always found for myself as well, just if you can translate through practical applications and have a high level understanding of things, you get a good understanding of just some of maybe the PhD level concepts put into practice and how you really can apply those into turning what would be some massive transformational concept into here are the microtized improvements that you can do and why this matters and how this elevates an industry once you can contextualize how these applications really transform. Yeah, and ultimately, if you look at very comp complex companies uh, like Zymergen or like Recursion Pharma, where I'm involved, you know, ultimately, the core philosophical insight, the core mechanism for these companies, they're, they're quite simple. So I, I also think that there's sometimes there, there can be an, a crutch in making something as complicated as possible. And I've always, I've always found that sharp, clear-minded founders are able to distill down their company or their ideas to different levels of abstraction. And it's actually a, a negative sign if you find yourself drowning in, in PhD level conversation without some core, very clear kernel of insight and, and even if a company is very complicated, you know, ultimately the main underpinning idea of the company should be simple. And, you know, for someone like me or, or, or you, Chaz, it, 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 it should be clear, especially if you're willing to do additional reading and to do the homework. So I, I really haven't seen any issues there. And if I do, I, I see that as a, as a red flag. So Nan, it was really interesting. You were talking about applying digital technologies to industries that weren't really used to that. And if we think about investing in across different industries, the philosophy of funding in tech is very different from one of those industries that weren't used to it, like biology. But in recent years, we've seen a convergence of the two models. So could you talk a little bit about this trend and what it means for the future of, of tech plus biotech? I think that you have pretty different camps coming together. And one simplistic way you can categorize them is a platform-centric model versus an asset-centric model, right? And, and, and underlying that, there are embedded beliefs of biology in those models, right? The question here is, can you build a platform in biology that can generate multiple assets and can give you a basket and a, and a deep pipeline of different products to take to market? Or is drug discovery ultimately capturing lightning in a bottle, right? And, and I think that in, in pharma and traditional life science, there's, there's a certain level of mysticism in the industry. You know, one example here is that a term that's pretty prevalent in the industry to describe a great scientist is a drug hunter. You'll hear that, hey, that person is a drug hunter. And I think that term says a lot, right? It says that 
drug discovery is not procedural. Drug discovery is, is this black box and there's some luck and some soft skills involved. And the new wave of technology companies that are entering into biotech, you know, they don't take that approach. You know, nothing, nothing in computer science or in the tech industry rivals that level of mysticism. The new companies that are coming in are trying to build procedures and they're trying to build repeatable productized platforms and approaches to engineer biology or to systematize biology. And you know, that, that can be a really challenging or uh, even heretical idea to the existing life sciences because it, it's, it's, it's very counterintuitive. Right. And so you've written about turning biology into a search problem. You've invested in a number of companies using AI to develop and screen new molecules for drug discovery. But there are still, as, as you say, a lot of people who are skeptical about things like computational drug design. And many people say there's more hype than there mm-hmm. should be. To them, could you point to any key victories or, or key promising results that have emerged from the space? Yeah, and I, I think that you know, any new technology should trigger some amount of skepticism from the industry. So it's, it's totally warranted, and I understand it. I think it's been, it's been very exciting to see the field mature over the last five to 10 years in that there's so much progress being made every year in this, in this field. And it's really moved from an area that is you know, somewhat hypothetical and, and where bold claims are being made to now today where there are companies and there are products, there are clinical trials that are active that you can point to that showcase the effectiveness of some of these methods. So I'll, I'll just use recursion as an example because I'm close to, this, to the company and their pipeline. But recursion now has four clinical stage assets that are in patients today. And those assets were discovered using their platform, using their approach, which is heavily focused on computation. So I think over time, you're seeing this translation of, uh, of an approach and a technology and some philosophical underpinnings to tractable results, especially you know, now, these are results that have made the transition to the vocabulary and the currency of the industry, which are maturity of pipelines, advancement of assets, patient, patient studies, and clinical results. So I, I think the, the category of computational biology or AI for drug discovery is getting validated further and further every day. Yeah, I think I totally agree. It's, it's a very exciting time to see this new sort of therapeutic discovery. So where do you see it, like, let's say 10 years from now? I think it's, I think it's a really interesting question. You know, it's funny how any interesting cycle in technology, it, it takes a lot longer than VCs typically think or our entrepreneurs think. You know, our, our worldview tends to be faster paced and we're, we're always you know, onto the next trend, onto the next cycle. But something like something as large and wide sweeping as the, the convergence of computation and the tech industry and the pharma industry, this will take many decades. And I, I think we're, we're entering into a golden era of biological innovation where the two worlds are coming together and working together in unique ways. I think if you fast forward 10 years from now, 
first off, we'll be able to speak of many, many more successful case studies of the industry. And you'll see this toolkit and this approach being applied across a much wider set of indications or therapeutic modalities. So I, I think just like how AI has swept into the enterprise and at this point is now commonplace, it's almost not worth mentioning that a company uses AI. I think the same thing will happen here where, where you'll see a saturation of this approach and technology being inserted across the industry. And you're here in this conversation, we're still a little defensive. <laughs> we're still trying to point to positive case studies to justify the claims. I, I think in 10 years, it, the conversation will have shifted to sharing best practices, maybe to sharing centralized toolkits or methods that other companies can use and adopt. And it will be less focused on these point solutions or pioneering companies that are leading the charge. I, I definitely believe that. And along the way, you have to believe that the, the underlying infrastructure that powers computational biology will have advanced in terms of high throughput robotics, methods for data management and machine learning, and ultimately a richer and more robust set of assets that have emerged from this field that are in clinic and, and hopefully that are commercial. Non, one, one question for that I get asked kind of all the time that I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on when we're speaking about kind of the, the 10 year journey. Oftentimes in biology, you have pretty, I'd say, structured, set, regimented path through the FDA and the maturation time for these companies can be quite longer compared to average tech companies. When you're talking kind of about like fund cycles and higher managing expectations, how do you think about payback time and the scale of what these companies can reach and the timelines that it takes for that to happen? It's a really good question. It not only applies to biology, but really to any of the heavy duty industries that I, I mentioned earlier, you know, building a company of consequence takes time. For us, the entire model of venture capital is to be patient capital, right? It ultimately venture got its start by funding challenging long-term projects. And I ultimately think those are the, the use cases where venture should exist. So we, we want to be patient investors and we want to be able to watch a company grow over a decade or longer. And we set those expectations with our investors. You know, the LPs and obvious know that we're here to build world-changing companies. And those companies take time they take contextual awareness and they, they take a lot of research and they, and they also take a lot of patience. So I think expectation setting on the LP side in terms of how to set up a venture fund like ours is really important. And then on the startup side, we definitely think that watching a company grow from seed all the way to a large, hopefully category leader is going to take over a decade not just in terms of FDA timeline, but also building out the platform, finding the right assets to advance, you know, those all take time. But I think the feedback loop is much tighter than that because you're, you're constantly learning what the platform is capable of. You, you have very asymmetric data and awareness of platform capability on the inside. And I think, you know, the story of Azimergen growing over the last seven years it becomes increasingly clear that 
what they're doing has commercial viability and is interesting externally. But as insiders, we had that conviction very early on, not just that we bought into the story, but that we could see the results that were not publicly disclosed. And it was very clear that this method was working and working better than anything else in the industry. So as long as we have that closed loop empirical evidence that these platforms are working and we have LP support and we have the disposition to, to be patient, then I think we're completely aligned to you know, make sure we monitor companies that we're investing in, but we're not hurrying them to exit. We're, we're, we're making sure that they, they take their time, they, they stay longer in the private markets to make sure that they can build something that's long lasting. And when we talk about kind of this feedback loop here, really great point. Uh, I've seen personally just a trend, I think kind of developed in the Valley over the last few years of pushing companies into rare diseases uh, in terms of therapeutic areas to focus on. Do you think that's something that is helping this feedback loop strengthen? Kind of your your personal preference there as well? I think that there are trade-offs here. Uh, You know, with rare disease, you're making a market size trade-off, but you sometimes have faster paths to market. So it's like a speed and size trade-off. I don't necessarily think that the speed of commercialization of an asset has to be the driving attribute, but it it really depends on the company. I, I certainly think that some asset classes or indication areas where the matriculation is longer, they also have a much higher payoff. So this is something that I, I think is, is really important is that in pharma, it's such a wide space. You can build a successful company in a variety of different ways. And I, I feel like founders often get advice to be like another company or they see a success case and they, they start to emulate. But if you're doing that in an artificial way that doesn't feel natural and it doesn't feel like it's, it's augmenting the core capabilities of what you, of what you have, I think that can be really problematic. So I think that startups have to really have introspection to understand what is the core advantage that I have that I'm trying to push forward and how do I stay true to that versus, for example, seeing rare disease and a faster FDA process and then pivoting the company or seeing the uh, effects of COVID right now and pivoting the entire company. I just think that it's better to know where, where your strengths are and to know what game you're playing and stick to that model. And there are, there are a variety of different models that can be successful. Very, very well put there. And, and agreed. I mean, you, you obviously want to push forward with the strength of your company and the strength of your team. And I think this is something where we've had this conversation in the past, but just we kind of affectionately call at Alix at least kind of the path through the clinic, you have the, the manifest destiny, which is you're doing the therapeutic development in-house. And we think about the other side of this kind of being like the tech plus partner, where you have some amazing screening technology, but then you're, you're largely outsourcing through CROs or with big pharma partnerships, early development of assets. Do you have a right. preference for kind of pass through the clinic or different pros and cons perhaps maybe of kind of which of those two pathways you'd be more excited for as we're kind of delving into like what the future of platforms really looks like? Yeah, I, I, I think that if you truly believe that you're, you are building a platform that can generate multiple assets, that ultimately you don't have one 
piece of IP that you have to protect, but you have a method or a mechanism that can bear fruit over a long time. If you have that, I think it makes sense to be to be long-term oriented. And, and what I mean by that is if you can partner out the first asset or if you can give up economics uh, on some of the early products that you create, it, 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 to trade off for industry buy-in or for signal or to make your make make the company a little bit capital light a little bit more capital efficient those trade-offs make a lot of sense if you believe that you have multiple assets and that you will have other opportunities to own ip i think that building a company that's resilient and trying to find a way to get industry support early makes a lot of sense if you have multiple assets. And I, I definitely have given companies the advice before to not be short-term greedy and not to focus too much on the economics of their first deal, but play the longer game. Like think about what external benefits, second order effects might come from that first partnership. And if they can build their platform on someone else's dime, then they should go ahead and do that, even if they're they're giving up some of the economics uh, of that first deal. So that that's a path that you know I think a lot of platform companies either choose or at least explore because there are so many benefits to make the first few rounds more capital efficient, to give you some uh, industry credibility that can help you down the road, and also to to help contextualize. The, the tech piece of, of maturing the platform and building, building out that tech pipeline against a real case study that comes from industry. And I, I think that's very useful as well because you know that what you're building has a real application immediately and you're not being too theoretical and, and, and staying high level for too long of a period of time. Yeah, and, and the East and West Coast uh, definition of platforms, we've spoken where it's kind of you get this Phase 1B, Phase 2, clinical efficacy, what do you ultimately validate is that the repurposing of an asset across multiple different indications is more the East Coast definition of a platform, while the West Coast definition being more that you're able to reproduce assets of the same make and mold variety that would follow the asset you just proved a relatively similar path through the clinic. So right. would, would right. love kind of your, your thoughts on how West Coast companies are really taking that definition of platforms and, and, and evolving it. Yeah, I think that tech forward bio companies think about platform in a very different way than uh, I think, Chaz, you're, you're characterizing uh, East Coast platform companies. And that's absolutely right. If you look at companies like Moderna or Juno, these are platform companies. They have multiple assets. They have a core mechanism within biology that they believe in and that they're commercializing across a wide set of indications. So that, that to me is a platform, but it's not a tech-driven platform. And, and that's, that's the main difference. Is I, I, the way I ask it sometimes when I meet companies is, are you advancing commercializing a core biological insight or a technological or digital insight? Right, like th those are very different. If you believe that you found some underlying mechanism of a disease or uh, you're inventing a new class of vaccines, those are biological insights that can generate platforms. The West Coast 
if you will, type of companies that, that I tend to work with, they're not coming out of academic labs with a kernel of biological insight. That's really not how they get started. You know, their insight is around systems and around the application of data science in these problems. So that's, that's what I like to call computational biology, just to emphasize that the computation piece is critical. It has to be included. And, and essentially computational biology is the application of data science to explore biological questions in a way that investigates, interrogates biology without relying on forming and then subsequently testing biological hypotheses. So the, the, the way that computational biology works is to rapidly move through the SYN-BIO stages where you're designing a set of experiments, you're building the experiments out, you test, you run and test the experiments uh, in a wet lab, like in biological space, and then you take the results of those tests back into digital space to learn and generate the next set of experiments. So that loop with machine learning right in the middle is the, the core of computational biology. And, and what, it, what it looks like is a search method through biology where some of the experiments that you, de you design can be random. They don't have to be informed by precedent and they don't have to be informed by any sort of biological hypothesis. And if you can run through that cycle fast enough cheap enough, then that evolves the answer faster than thinking about the problem and rationalizing the problem to find a solution. So, so that's, that's how I think about computational biology. And something that's important to note here is that entire framework uh, hinges on the quality uh, and the characteristics of the test phase. So you, you're only as good as your assay and the speed of your experiment, the cost of each experiment, and essentially the quality of signal capture from the experiment. Those three characteristics are ultimately the, the atomic unit of the whole company. You know, the extrapolation of those characteristics make up the platform efficiency, capital needs, and all of the emergent properties of each comp bio company is ultimately a representation of that core assay unit. So I, I like to dive in and understand that unit because it, it's the bounding box for the entire company. This perfectly segues into kind of the next segment here. And a lot of what you're talking about is just how utterly transformational some of the big visions the companies you're working with are. Can you talk about kind of the day-to-day -day kind of advising roles that you have with these companies and kind of how you keep them grounded as a board member, board observer, kind of what your, your role in parlaying these missions are? Yeah, sure. The model that we practice at Obvious is very high-touch investing. We invest in very few companies relative to other venture firms, I would say. And we try to both be informed, high-conviction investors, and, and we try to be helpful investors. So we, you know, we all spend a lot of our time with portfolio companies. I spend a lot of my time with companies versus trying to find more companies, for example. So what that looks like, I think is first 
spending enough time learning so that you are informed as an investor about the space and about what a company is trying to accomplish and what they believe in. And I think bio investing is just a category of investing that's not well suited for tourists. Uh, I know that that tech plus bio is becoming more popular, certainly since 2012, <laughs> when uh, I was starting to look into this area. But it, ultimately, these companies still have the uncertainty and the non-linearity of biology in the company. It's different than building software as an enterprise SaaS company, for example, where you kind of know how long it will take you to build something and you just have to try to sell it. You know, these companies are different. They, there's, there's an unknown time element. And, uh, and I, I try very much to stay up to date on research, on current events, on what's happening in the industry and in academia in the spaces where the companies I work with operate so that we can have real conversations about what's happening, about where they fit in. And I think having context helps us to have conviction through the ups and downs and to not use intellectual shortcuts to measure company progress, something like revenue or partnerships or other vanity metrics. I ultimately want to know if the platforms are working or not. And if they're working, how well they're working or in what spaces they're working in. You know, that's the true measure of progress. Because if that holds true and continues to grow, then there will be lots of different commercialization options. As you mentioned, partnerships, tech licensing, uh, owning IP and advancing an asset through development. There are so many different options if the platform works. So uh, I spent a lot of my time you know, working with founders to get to the ground truth of platform operations, of what they're learning about their core technology, and you know, trying to make sure that they feel supported and that they don't feel undue pressure to drive their first dollar of revenue before they're ready or to sign a partnership because that's an important signal when they actually can't, for example, you know, fulfill the partnership or live up to the contract. I think that as investors, the best piece of support that we can give to a founder is to really make them believe that we know what they're trying to build that we support them for the long run and that our support is unwavering in small ups and down blips as the company matures, especially at early stage for these types of companies. So to, to get that level of buy-in and trust, I think it just takes a lot of over-communication uh, both ways. So I, I have a pretty casual and, and constant cadence with uh, companies I invest in for this reason. You know, I, I don't want it to be about board meetings and reporting. I just want to know what's happening all the time. And hopefully we can bypass the formality and, and just talk about, you know, learnings and adjustments and, and reprojection and, and operating the company more on a weekly basis versus these big milestone investor check-ins. So that that's the general model. And I think that has really helped to build a level of trust and, and make founders feel comfortable that they should be long-term oriented and not, not so keen on delivering some great quarter or something like that. 
You're, uh, you're, you're preaching to the choir here, my friend. Uh, I, I'm definitely on the same boat of working with your companies and having the inside feedback loop, but also just unwavering support in the trenches, equally as supportive, good times and bad. As a founder, having been one, uh, it, it's, it's what you want to hear, but it's also just, it, it means a lot to have an investor actually say that as well. So thanks for uh, giving yeah. us the, the behind the scenes there. When you talk kind of about the, the learnings that you developed with these companies and the feedback loop for some of these, you, you've been in the early pitches for Zymergen, Recursion, Lab Genius, and so many other amazing companies in this space. Can you talk about some of the learnings that you picked up from those companies and just where you see things going now and perhaps any calls for startups or any crystal ball, new insights, predictions for kind of things you're looking for these days? Yeah, yeah, I, I have many. <laughs> I, I definitely think that I've been really fortunate to be at the right place at the right time for the for the the emergence of this industry, and I, I really think that we're just at the beginning of maybe revolution is too strong of a word, but an important transformation in pharma using these new tools. And as a result, I, I have seen some of the early stories and and progress for the leading companies, the pioneers of, of this category. You know, I, I think the, there, there are so many learnings and I've been so fortunate to have a front row seat and hopefully I can reapply those learnings and help the next generation of companies avoid some of the pitfalls or, or uh, learn from some of the mistakes that they didn't have to make. But I, I think the most important thing is that comes up again and again is that even though these companies are pushing forward a new way of doing things, you know, a new way of exploring biology. And there are some, you know, fairly radical tenets to what they believe in, in pharma, interface with pharma, bringing it back home to speak in the language of the industry is very important. And there are, there are no shortage of smart people who want to work on this problem and have uh, an idea of, of something that they're excited about. But I think that the, at least the companies that I've worked with have been very successful in involving the industry and, and not chastising them or trying to bypass them. It ultimately, if you're trying to develop novel materials or, or therapeutics, you need the help of the industry, right? You, you have to ultimately leverage a pharma company's resources or a, C, a CDMO's resources to bring your idea to life. And the disruption model, if you will, in life science is collaborative by nature. You will never see a Netflix blockbuster story play out here, right? You can't just go and circumvent the industry completely. So I think the, the companies where I've been on the board and have been involved early, they started thinking about that very early. So it it's, it's challenging here because you know, the, the founding idea of the company is to do something different, right? So they definitely believe in a new way of thinking and, and there's, you know, there's definitely that entrepreneurial spirit in the companies, but they've been able to balance that with awareness of, of the industry that they're trying to go into and how they think about, for example, certain indication areas and what, even, even simple things like what assays resonate more when they talk to partners. So being able to, to wear 
to play two different roles and wear two different hats where one, it's all about innovation and doing something different and thinking outside the box. But then two, you have to take all of that and package it so that it looks like it's inside the box. <laughs> Otherwise, I think it's very challenging and to work with the industry or to get the partnerships or get the support that you need or even get the capital that you need. You know, ultimately being able to be a startup and uh, to build something radical is important, but it's equally important to not, I, not do it in isolation and to not alienate the industry, especially these industries where you really need external support. And you know, some of the biggest accomplishments from these companies is, is both what they've been able to build internally from the platform side and the technology side. But if you look at Zymergen, you know, what I'm also equally excited about is how much external support they have to bring their products to market. They just announced their first novel product that they developed, but they've partnered with Sumitomo to, to take to market, to commercialize this brand new material called Hyaline. So those stories are, are important to notice because in every victory, if, 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 you, if you study them in the industry, there is an undertone of collaboration. And it's just really important to start thinking about really early on and not tack on at the end when you want to make a sale. I like the, the blend that you're saying there of kind of old school meet new school and how do you really work with um, the prior <laughs> in, incumbents to really kind of bridge the gaps and get their mindset. We have a saying at the fund, I mean, no great feat is ever accomplished in isolation. It truly takes a village and you're, you're attesting to that yeah. for sure. With uh, just a few more minutes here, wanted to kind of discuss where do you see the next part of this revolution going and any kind of calls for startups you might have at Obvious Ventures that our, our listeners can keep an eye out for? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think at a high level, what I'm really excited by is that it seems like we've really opened up the search space in materials and therapeutics from, from where they have been historically. Uh, you know, in materials, uh, you know, historically, there have been process bottlenecks in petrochemical refinement that really limits this, the set of materials that we can create. And the rise of Zymergen and other biomaterials companies has really unlocked that to a much wider set of hopefully materials and with new and novel material properties. And the same thing is happening in therapeutics where you know, prior bottlenecks in target-driven drug discovery or undruggable targets in therapeutics have been opened up a bit because of computational search and navigation through this kind of systems biology, engineering biology approach. So I'm really excited about that. And, and when, you, when you look at tools like this that have this wide of a scope, you know, when you have a hammer of that magnitude, all you see are nails. <laughs> it's so hard to not see an application of this school of thought in every therapeutic modality, every indication. And, and again, it's important to understand mechanistically, mechanistically how it would work and what the assays would be, what the set of experiments would be. But I believe that there are many areas where you will see new companies develop that take this philosophy and mechanism and build verticalized companies that are comp bio focused. And some of the verticals that I've been paying attention to 
where I, I don't see, you know, large companies yet, but I, I see a lot of activity and there's certainly high interest to pharma. Uh, one is CAR-T, you know, CAR engineering and T-cell activation, really important area. Uh, I think there can be more computational approaches there. Second area, inflammation and immunotherapy, understanding the immune system, mapping out antibodies. Uh, I just think that's a really interesting category where data science seems to be very good fit for some of the problems that, that uh, exist there. And then the third category uh, where I've been spending some time now is manufacturing. So actually downstream, post-discovery, post-development, but looking okay. at some of the- Plus one for manufacturing. Yeah, looking well. at some of the um, bottlenecks, looking at some of the inefficiencies in manufacturing, especially in biologics, because the category and the nature of assets that are advancing look very different now than 10 years ago. And manufacturing and distribution needs to keep pace. So I, I see that as, as um, uh, an inefficiency that, that's really important in the next 10 years. Just as we close up, what advice would you give to early stage founders who are starting or thinking of starting companies in life sciences focused on deep tech? Yeah, uh, a couple of points. And, and one we touched on earlier, I think it's really important to stay true to your core capability and what you're trying to commercialize as a company instead of form fit your company into certain archetypes of success, maybe that you see in the industry. I feel like I've seen companies that are forcing themselves to be a platform when really they have one asset that makes sense to commercialize. And I also see companies that it feels like are tacking on an AI or computational story when their core insight is a biological mechanism. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are ways to build amazing companies regardless of, of what path you take. So I think that it's better to over-represent what you are and what makes sense for you and to find the right investor for that, even if you get a few no's because you'll be outside of the scope of some investors, then to force fit yourself to each investor that you see because it will come across as inauthentic. And I think it's very confusing. I can only imagine how confusing it would be for your co-founders and, and for uh, to run the company. So I, I hope that founders feel like there are enough enough investors out there that have different dispositions where they can you know, find the right set for them versus latch on to the latest and greatest model. Uh, you know, right now, a lot of emphasis on AI for sure, but it only makes sense if it is authentic. So I, I think that is a really big piece of like knowing what game you're playing, having the confidence to play it and not to deviate from it just because of market trends. That's a very bad reason to deviate from your strategy. And then the, the, other, the other thing I would mention for founders is in, in biology, because progress is unevenly distributed and, and, and you know, somewhat nonlinear, you know, to, to really be thoughtful about building a company and think about multi-stage, multi-round planning. You know, companies that raise a seed start to think about what does it take to raise the next round and what progress needs to be made and how much of that progress is under your control and how much of it is 
still driven by biological discovery and certain binary events to happen and to give yourself a buffer and to do scenario planning against that. You know, I, I think to build a deep tech company in general, especially a biology company, requires different planning than building a pure play software company or any product company where you are in control of your own development schedule. And, uh, you know, even companies that I work with, you know, we think a lot about ha having buffer for unknown timelines and making sure that we are extra conservative about getting past a certain threshold of progress before going out to market and just, you know, timing the market out and, and the stages out is, is trickier here. And it's worth putting extra effort up front so that you don't get caught in a valley between two peaks and with improper runway or cash management. It's just an issue that I see come up a lot. And it's, it's not a, it's not a interesting issue. You're not going to see a lot of uh, public press or, or I think thought leadership around it, but I just find it to be very important. Uh, that, that's, that's fantastic, Nan. Uh, thanks for your great advice there. And if you have time for just one quick question in our kind of running series here, yeah. I would love your advice, honestly, that you would, uh, that you'd give yourself. I think that we, as VCs are somewhat behind kind of a mystified kind of wall sometimes in the, the knowings of our, our inner workings, how we operate is, is a little bit perhaps not as transparent to founders as it sometimes otherwise would be. Where one thing I'd love to learn is just what would you kind of give your advice for yourself one, five and, and 10 years ago? You've been doing this now as an early stage investor for a decade. How would you kind of advise yourself over the, the last few years here? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what time period this would be applicable. Probably all of them. I would give this advice to myself today, and and I should, I should write it on a on a sticky note and have it <laughs> on my desk. Is that at least in in the current environment in venture and really how things have been progressing, I think that venture capital is becoming more specialized, which is a reaction to the industry becoming more mature and saturated. But I think. If I look at starting out my career 10 years ago and what, how I would represent myself and how I would think about investing versus now, I've certainly started to tunnel in on a few areas that I have strong conviction over the next decade or longer versus looking at everything and trying to be a generalist. I, je I, I mostly think that venture will go to the specialists. I think that specialty networks, specialty knowledge, contextual awareness we covered is critical to being a truly helpful investor to founders versus, you know, dishing out generic business building advice. I just think that, you know, having that context, and I can see it even in my own career, investing in the first company in a category versus, you know, now in Comp Bio, I'm investing in the seventh, you know, or eighth company. I, I truly think that you become better if you specialize. So any, any person thinking about getting into venture or who's a little bit earlier on, uh, you know, I think it's worth thinking about how can you be a top investor in a more narrow segment versus a very active investor across a large number of segments. 
Fabulous. Thanks, Nan. Well, always a pleasure, my friend, to speak with you and grateful for your time this morning. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, Jazz. This is fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.